Uh, before I get started today, um, I wanted to mention this is a milestone of sermon for me. Uh, first of all, this Sunday marks 30 years of ordained ministry. I was ordained to the gospel ministry in November of 1991. Uh, never knew if I would last this long, most pastors don't. Uh, and second, today marks the 900th sermon that I've preached here at Potomac Hills. 900. <laughs> and that's a lot. Um, that includes 10 Advent series, 16 topical series, and 49 books of the Bible. Uh, which means when we start uh, Deuteronomy in January, not only will that be the 50th book of the Bible that we'll go through, but it will also coincide with my 20th anniversary as pastor of this church, my 25th anniversary as pastor of this church. It is not likely that you will hear that many sermons from one person ever again. Uh, it is less likely uh, that you will ever again have the same pastor for 25 years, although most of you haven't been here that long. Uh, I've said this before, I don't expect one sermon to dramatically change your life, though I'm amazed when that does happen. However, I do expect there to be a cumulative effect of having sat under the ministry of the word uh, 900 times over 25 years. I expect you to be different for it. I expect you to be more mature spiritually. I expect you to be closer to Christ today than you were before you got here, regardless of how long you've been here or how many sermons you've heard. Uh, Martin Luther once said, I did nothing, God's word did everything. And I hope that would be true here as well. I hope that the faithful preaching of God's word, as faulty as it is sometimes, would over time change your life. And so for so many times and so many years, thanks for listening. Let's turn to our text for today. We are in Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 12, to the end of the chapter, and actually we'll carry over to the first verse of chapter 4. So Philippians 3.12 through 4.1, and let's, as always, listen carefully as uh, this is God's word. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, 
and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And as always, we need it more than we think we do. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Lord, we pray that we would learn from you today, that we would learn how to uh, keep on in the faith, that we would learn how to trust you for those who haven't. Thank you that today we're learning again from the Apostle Paul. Help us to hear his words, understand them, believe them, and obey them. And so we pray, speak through Philippians 3 this morning. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, one of my favorite events is coming this February. And that's the Winter Olympics. It's way better than the Summer Olympics. Though we like those. And we really enjoyed watching the Paralympics this year as well. Amazing courage in those games. And yet the problem with the Summer Olympics is uh, they have the events and people win or lose. But with the Winter Olympics, they have the events and people win or lose or crash. I mean, why do we watch figure skating? Because when they try to pull off that quadruple south cow flip thing, there is a high probability that skater is going to face plant on the ice and slide into the wall. Or take any alpine skiing event. There is a good chance that at some point we're going to see an 80 mile an hour human snowball careening down the mountain. How about bobsled and luge? and the aptly named skeleton, rocketing down the track. They're not supposed to flip over, but they do. Speed skating, it's just roller derby on ice. Or what is so nicely called freestyle skiing. That's where people do flips and tricks on short skis and crash with great style. Or the moguls. That's where they ski down a course filled with large bumps and their knees are pumping up and down like pistons. It's every knee surgeon's favorite event. Or my personal favorite, ski jumping. Oh, the agony of defeat. If you've ever seen a ski jump up close, they're really high. Those people fly way up in the air, like eight to 10 stories off the ground. You have to be certifiably nuts. And if you don't stick the landing, the landing will stick you. Guaranteed. Now, if we could only do something with curling. I don't know, make those sliding stones explode on impact or something. We would all watch it. And I know that I'm going to get all caught up in the television coverage of the Winter Olympics again uh, this February in Beijing. So what does the Olympics have to do with Philippians 3? I thought you'd never ask. 
As we approach this passage, I'm impressed with the vividness and accuracy of Paul's athletic imagery. Whether it be the giant slalom or the 70 meter ski jump or the 1000 meter speed skating race, his description of the athlete holds true. Eyes ahead, no looking back, every muscle in the body straining towards the goal. But note that Paul's description of this race is strikingly non-competitive. There's no mention of other athletes, only of himself and his single-minded devotion to his own goal. And that also holds true. I remember uh, a lesson I learned from watching the last Winter Olympics. One speed skater related how she always performed best when she could take her mind off the other skater who was paired with her. She turned in her best performance when she kept her mind on her own race and set her own pace. And that too is the picture that Paul paints here. Each disciple who's been obtained by the Lord has their own race to run, their own pace to set, and their own crown of life awaiting them at the end of the course. And in line with that, the first thing the Apostle Paul tells us is to press on in the gospel. The gospel would be the first blank if you have the sermon uh, outlined and following along verses 12 through 14, we press on in the gospel. Paul writes there, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, what is the it? He says, I do not consider that I have made it my own. He says, verse 12, I press on to make it my own. What's the it? What is the it that he's striving to make his own? Well, for that answer, we actually have to back up a few verses to Philippians 3, verses 10 and 11, where he says that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so Paul is saying, I don't think that I've made that my own. I don't know Christ as well as I should. This is the apostle Paul. And he's making it clear he's not there yet. He hasn't arrived in the Christian life. He hasn't been fully sanctified yet. What he's saying is something to the effect of Philippians, please understand me. I'm pressing on. I have a zeal to become more like Jesus, a zeal you wouldn't believe. And like an athlete, I'm straining forward, but the finish line still lies ahead. I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived at that level of perfect holiness. And I won't get there until the final resurrection. Note the two expressions that he uses. In verses 12 and 14, he says, I press on. 
In verse 13, he says, I'm straining forward. The word translated press on is actually the same word that's translated persecuting in Philippians 3, 6, where he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. In fact, that's the most common use of that word in the New Testament. But when Paul uses it here in verses 12 and 14, it has the idea of chasing, of going after, of pursuing, so as to lay hold of a prize. And the idea of straining forward is very graphic. It's a picture of a runner straining every nerve and muscle as they strive to cross the finish line. However, the underlying motivation has changed between verses 6 and 12. In verse 6, where he talked about being a persecutor, that's dramatically different. There, it's a zeal of self-righteousness. Here in verse 12, it's the zeal of a man who's rejoicing in the righteousness of Christ yearning to be all that God has intended him to be. And expressed by Paul as taking hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of him. There is a direct correlation between faith in the righteousness of Christ and zeal in the cause of Christ. The more a person counts his righteousness as loss and lays hold of, by faith of the righteousness of Christ, the more that he or she will be motivated to live and work for Christ. The same Christian activity can either be an expression of our own righteousness, because we're trying to earn favor with God, or it can be an expression of gratitude because we already have this favor through the righteousness of Christ. Now, hear me carefully. Obedience and good works are critically important in the Christian life. The entire New Testament affirms that. But if we try to make them meritorious, meaning that we think they're earning for us the hope of eternal life, or even God's favor in this life, then they become dangerous cargo. Paul calls them rubbish. Our work is only good as it's done in response to the person and work of Christ himself and the work that he's done in our lives. But what we do not do, according to this, is just go on autopilot. But rather, we are exhorted by Paul to press on to maturity. Verses 15 and 16, press on to maturity. There he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The noted scholar, Dr. D.A. Carson, uh, writes that people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness or prayer or obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we've escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we've been liberated. 
You will not grow in the Christian life through inertia. You have to move. But move where? Move how? What's the grace-driven effort that Dr. Carson refers to, and how is it different from some other kind of religious or spiritual uh, effort? Grace-driven effort springs from parking ourselves at the gospel and beholding Christ. People who truly behold the person of Christ, who he is, and dwell on the finished work of Christ, what he's done on their behalf, then move into mission and service. They start serving God's people. They serve Christ by serving others. They start talking about uh, Jesus, and they can't sort of, um, they can't not run and tell others about Jesus. And this passage affirms that what was attained was not by Paul's effort, but by Jesus' effort. Those verses end with Paul saying, verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Let's hold on to what we already got. We don't graduate from the gospel. We hold on to it. We stay true to it. And then it empowers us to press on. Grace-driven effort flows from the joys and wonders of worship that comes from beholding the amazing gospel of God's grace. No one drifts into holiness. The Holy Spirit takes you there. But God uses means to achieve his ends. And his earthly means of sanctifying you is your pursuit of the righteousness of Christ. That we are being transformed is a promise. That we should be transformed is a command. We actually see that in the scriptures, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's the promise. But then we have Romans 12, too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's the command. Now, this spiritual tension caused Walter Marshall to affirm in uh, his classic book, The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification, that uh, grace is not only the grounds of our justification, our initial coming to Christ, but it's the grounds of our sanctification as well, our ability to follow Christ. And in that book, he writes, each of us must endeavor diligently to make right use of all means appointed in the word of God for the obtaining and practicing of holiness. And a sign of maturity is when we do that. It's a sign of maturity when we do that for others too. It's a sign of maturity when we do that for our children as well. We've had a few baptisms lately and we got a few more coming. And if you remember, the parents take vows. And the third vow that the parents take is this. Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise and humble reliance upon the grace of God that you will endeavor to set before him a godly example, that you will pray with him and for him, that you will teach him the great truths of the Christian faith, and that you will strive, hear this, by all the means that God provides to bring them up in the nurture and admission of the Lord. And then, of course, the congregation takes a vow in response. 
and that is, do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting these parents in the Christian nurture of this child? And what all that means is that all the means that God provides includes you. When you're assisting these parents through nursery, Sunday school, children's church, babysitting, if you can't do those, then through regular prayer and encouragement, when you're doing those things, then you're acting as the means that God provides for the Christian nurture of those children. That's what spiritually mature people do. But not everyone does that. Some people take vows and then walk away. Perhaps they take membership vows, one of which is that you will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ. But not everyone does. I went back and looked at a random membership role uh, for our church. I looked at March of 2009. At that point, we had 141 communicant members. Of those, I counted eight adults who are no longer following Christ. Furthermore, I counted another 11 young adults who grew up in the church, who are, best of my knowledge, are no longer following Christ. 13% of this church in 2009 is no longer following Christ 12 years later. That's sad. It's actually kind of depressing. How does that happen? Why does that happen? And how can we keep it from happening to us? Well, Paul says that we not only need spiritual maturity, but we also need spiritual stability. So let's look at the next set of verses to press on to stability, verses 17 to 19. These are the hard verses of this text. It says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Well, first of all, uh, similar to two weeks ago, we have to imitate those who imitate Christ. Verse 17, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on that because it was the bulk of the sermon from two weeks ago. So I encourage you to go back and listen to that and read that one again. But we know that not everyone will continue to follow Christ. We all know people who used to profess faith in Christ, but don't anymore. This is a phenomenon I wrote about in the weekly email. It's called deconstructing the faith, what we used to call deconversion. It addresses the situation of a former believer, a former member of the church, who has announced that he or she has left the faith. There have been a number of well-known uh, musicians and celebrity pastors who have taken this route. Now, not surprisingly, a change in one's views of the faith often coincides with a change in one's views on such things as marriage and sexuality. It's long been known 
that people leave the faith when they can't leave their sin. In fact, in what's become known as the Tim Keller question, he writes that when a, uh, a young adult, a college student, a recent grad, um, uh, comes to him and says they're you know, having questions and doubts about the faith, his first question is, who are you sleeping with? And he asks that because inevitably they're wrestling with sin they can't give up. And giving up the faith is just easier. The other major scenario comes with family members and close friends. We begin questioning the faith or redefining the doctrines of our faith out of a legitimate fear that we're gonna lose our relationship with this friend or family member. So we go to great lengths to maintain the relationship, even if it means redefining words such as love and grace and mercy by filling them with meanings derived from contemporary culture. In the introduction to the book, Before You Lose Your Faith, Deconstructing Doubt in the Church, edited by Ivan Mason, I encourage us, it's a little book, it's easy to read, uh, just came out, I think this past summer, um, a wonderful uh, book. Um, and in the introduction, uh, the editor writes, uh, I had never heard of Rhett and Link. They're the duo behind Good Mythical Morning, their daily YouTube show with more than 16 million subscribers, and Ear Biscuits, their podcast. I had heard of that. Until I learned of their public deconstruction story, the two of them, who as of December 2020, are the fourth highest YouTube earners making $20 million a year, shared about how they moved from being crew staffers, which is the old Campus Crusade for Christ, now called crew, they were on staff with crew. They were missionaries and they moved on believers, or as Rhett now describes himself as a hopeful agnostic. They're somewhat comedians, and for years they've been a staple in many homes uh, with children and young adults. They have lots of videos, some are hysterical, ranging from epic rap battles to testing the world's hottest peppers to getting shot with Nerf guns. But because of their popularity, it wasn't surprising that this public announcement of leaving the faith unsettled the faith of so many others. And while deconstruction stories are nothing new in a secular age, for example, Jen Hatmaker still describes herself as a Christian and Josh Harris doesn't, it seems that for many, traditional Christian faith is becoming increasingly implausible. Now, according to Rhett of Rhett and Link, he says, if I don't have to believe Christianity, then why would I? Of course, there's now online Facebook groups to assist you in the process and to affirm you in your sin. In fact, this is nuts. Josh Harris is now in the deconstruction coaching business. For small payments of hundreds of dollars, you can get his step-by-step -step videos on how to leave the faith. Now, in her book, called Another Gospel by Alyssa Childers, also a wonderful book, she's not writing about leaving the faith and moving to agnosticism or atheism. She's writing about leaving the faith and moving to progressive Christianity from 
uh, evangelical, basically to mainline uh, church, where you kind of keep the church but lose all the doctrine. And that's sort of, in a nutshell, uh, her book. But in it, she writes, deconstruction is the process of systematically dissecting and rejecting the beliefs you grew up with. Sometimes the Christians will deconstruct all the way to atheism. Some remain there, but others experience a reconstruction. But the type of faith they end up embracing almost never resembles the Christianity they formerly knew. And of course, all of this is accelerated by social media. But at its core, this type of unbelief is not new. Jesus warned us about this, Matthew 24. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. He's not talking about lawlessness of people out there you know, breaking the civil law. He's talking about lawlessness like Tom taught us about this morning from Romans 4, breaking the law of God. And he says, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And we have biblical examples from Hymenaeus and Alexander who shipwrecked their faith, 1 Timothy 1, to Philetus who swerved from the truth, 2 Timothy 2, to Demas who is in love with this present world, 2 Timothy 4. The early church saw many abandon the faith they once professed, 1 John 2. And we should be saddened, but we shouldn't be surprised. Now, many of the most common doubts and struggles seem to fall into two categories. There's some overlap. But the first set of doubts focuses on the truthfulness of Christian teaching. Is Christianity true? Can we really believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, that the miracles that we read about in the Old and New Testaments truly occurred, that the enchanted world of the Bible is a better description of reality than the scientific world of natural law that we experience every day? So many Christian stories and doctrines, like the full deity and the full humanity of Christ, to many people seem out of touch, irrelevant, and far-fetched. The second set of doubts focuses on the goodness of Christian teaching. Is Christianity good? And as people scan Christianity's record over the centuries, they can see the wreckage left behind by some who've done atrocious things in Jesus' name. And so they go unsettled with a religious certainty that they assume might lead to more acts of violence or unjust discrimination. Can we really believe the church is a force for good in a world where there's tragedies that can be traced back to its members? And some aspects of Christianity's moral vision, particularly the commands regarding sexuality and marriage, to our society today seem backward and unworkable. The Bible's moral aspirations strike many as simply unattainable. And so, at first, when you encounter doubts, on the one hand, you may try to salvage a Christian identity that remains true to one or the other sets. It's either true to the truthfulness or true to the uh, goodness. Perhaps you think you can hold on to the foundational truth claims of Christianity, the resurrection 
of Christ, the, the Apostles' Creed, but still remake and revise the moral vision of Christianity so it better corresponds to contemporary notions of goodness and freedom. Or maybe you focus on a renewed moral vision that includes all the teachings of Christianity that resonate with you. You keep what you like. Loving your neighbor as yourself, showing grace to the outcast, the stranger, even your enemy. But you downplay or reinterpret the miracle stories that feel embarrassing in an age of technology. Many people want to keep something resembling Christianity. Since they believe religion is good, it provides us with purpose, it makes us kinder and uh, more decent, we treat others better. But any attempt to keep part of Christianity without the whole, or to revise it according to our personal preferences, will only end up leaving us unsatisfied. Now the really hard part of all of this especially if we're talking about close friends and family members, lies in how the Apostle Paul describes those who've turned against the church, who've turned against the Christian faith, who've turned against Christ. Starting at verse 18, and remember, these words are inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. He calls them enemies of the cross. Now that's easy to accept in the abstract, but when we start attaching the names of our brothers and sisters, our sons and daughters, our grandchildren, it becomes extremely difficult. And if you're dealing with these issues with friends and family, and I know that a number of you are, I encourage you to get these two books. I put them in the footnotes. I've actually given you a longer list of recommended reading. It's at the end of the sermon, it's at the end of the sermon notes, and it's the end of the community group study guide. So you can go online and get that. And it appears, and I don't have time to sort of give you all a how do we deal with this, I'm gonna give you some. But it appears that the key for folks to move from deconstructing their faith back to reconstructing their faith lies in their willingness to keep asking questions. Because questions bring answers. And those we have. In the meantime, what do you do? When close friends or family members leave the faith, it strikes our hearts in a way that few can understand. And hopefully this will give you some encouragement on how you can respond. The first step is to stop to grieve. When someone close to us turns away from Christ, the sorrow is real. Jesus understood what it's like to have dearly loved disciples lose faith. Some return, like Peter, and others don't, like Judas. In both scenarios, we can find sympathy uh, with the Lord, who is called the man of sorrows. We need to grieve lost faith but not in a way that prompts self-pity or bitterness, but our grief should fuel our prayer for these folk, pleading with the Lord to revive their faith. Second, we have to trust God. We simply have to trust the Lord. It's only natural when this happens to wonder, what could I have done different? What could I have said different? Could I have somehow addressed 
some of the difficult questions that have undermined their faith. Maybe, maybe not. However, because of God's grace, there's no need to live with guilt or self-pity about what could have been done differently. Salvation is the gracious work of God, period. And rather than focusing on what you wish you'd done, you need to trust the Lord with their future. Third, don't give up. Don't give up on them. Many who have left the faith will now consider you their spiritual enemy. Some have said they needed counseling to undo the harmful and destructive things uh, that they learned or heard in church. And that's true some of the time. But the words of 1 Corinthians 1.23 is a very hard reality check. It says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And Jesus' message to his own disciples in Luke 10, the one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now there isn't a whole lot you can do about someone's flat out rejection of the gospel. But at the same time, good shepherds chase down lost sheep. We need to be faithful and keep checking in on those who are questioning or deconstructing their faith. Follow up on opportunities to make yourself available to them, to listen to their questions and to walk with them. Perhaps uh, send them or give them a copy of this book. This isn't written for us as much as it's written for them. Offer to, to meet with them, to discuss it with them, to go through it with them. Pray for them regularly by name before the throne of grace while remembering you're not their savior and their salvation is not yours to determine. Praying for wisdom on how to deal with these folk seems like such an obvious response, but it's often and easily overlooked. And then fourth, keep playing the long game. We've seen a number of folks walk away from faith. Everyone involved in their life has had a seasons of questioning, what am I doing? But we need to be committed to playing the long game. I've told more than one set of parents here that God has not finished writing your child's story. All those promises you claim for them at their baptism are still in effect. And I know it is easy to grow discouraged by those who walk away from the faith. But God's at work in a thousand places that you can't see. And sometimes people lose their faith. Sometimes they lose the faith they never really had. Sometimes their faith comes back to life. Sometimes they actually get it for the first time. Either way, we cannot lose heart. We have to rest in the truth that Jesus is still building his church. And at this time in their life, they need stability. And you need stability. You have to keep on keeping on, to use an old phrase. As Paul says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Walk according to the examples you have in scripture. Walk according to the examples you have in the church. Walk according to the examples you have in Christ. It will not only help you be spiritually mature, it'll help you be spiritually stable. And then finally, press on to eternity. Picking up at verse 20, press on to eternity. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body 
by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul concludes by reminding the church of the heavenly mindset we need to possess. People walking and growing in maturity realize this world is not their home. Paul's reminding us our citizenship, our true citizenship is in heaven. You know, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was a little Rome. When people visited Philippi, they said, this reminds me of Rome. And Paul's letting the Philippians know that the church is a little colony of the kingdom of heaven. And when you're in the presence of God's people, their values and their lives should point you to heaven. When you see people taking care of the vulnerable, caring for orphans, doing all that is good and true, giving to the poor, speaking edifying words to one another, outdoing one another and showing honor, showing no partiality, showing uh, no racism, putting the needs of others ahead of our own. We should say, this smells like heaven. We should be giving the world a glimpse of what's coming in the future. We can show them what the king is like and what the kingdom is like. And people should look at the words and deeds of believers and think, you aren't from around here. And you can tell them my citizenship is in heaven. I'm just passing through. Bad examples set their minds on earthly things. Faithful examples live in light of their true citizenship. Last week in Sunday school, Ben said that every sermon had to have a C.S. Lewis quote. So here's this week's quote. If you read history, you will find the Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. One of the great preachers of the 20th century uh, from London was Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was always called doctor because he was actually a medical doctor before he became a preacher. And Eric Alexander, a gifted preacher himself, tells the story of when Lloyd-Jones went from London to Scotland to, to Glasgow to preach at the great St. Andrew's Hall. And he says, this auditorium held more than 2,000 people and it was packed and the preaching was wonderful. And after the meeting finished, I was waiting at the side of the platform for transport home. A long line of people were waiting to speak to Dr. Lloyd-Jones. Because I was fairly close to them, I heard some of the conversations. Interestingly, I noticed that every encounter ended the same way. Keep on, was the doctor's final exhortation as he shook hands. As it happened on the journey home, I was in the same car as the doctor, and he engaged me in conversation. After the generalities, I summoned up enough courage to ask him a question. Doctor, I began. Forgive me, but I couldn't help hearing your last words to every person you spoke with. They were, keep on. It sounded as if that was particularly important to you. He was immediately animated. My dear man, there is nothing more important, he says. The Christian life is not a sprint. It is a marathon. And that is why Jesus says, he who endures to the end will be saved. Paul tells us that we should not only be living out the kingdom's values, but we should be awaiting heaven's Lord, the king of the kingdom. 
He says, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We eagerly wait for his arrival. We welcome his arrival. We have to live in light of his arrival, straining forward to what lies ahead. We press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And when we see him, we won't regret having made every effort to know him more and more in this life. We won't regret having lived in light of our true citizenship. And every day we are getting closer. Keep pressing on until you see him. Think about that. You need to pray. And if you have friends or family members who swerve from the faith, why don't you pray for them now? Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that once again you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you. We confess our discouragement with the loss of friends and family who've walked away from the faith. Make us people who keep on in the faith, people who trust you for those friends and family members, people who don't stop praying for them, people who continue to be a godly example in their lives. And Father, continue to work in each of us as we learn how to live lives worthy of the gospel. Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and your word, and through the book of Philippians, draw us ever closer to the one who never gives up on us, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.